For all the political rancor that we've heard tied up with migrants being bused north, every one of them has a story. That's where we're starting today. 1A producer Avery J.C. Kleinman spoke to a family who navigated a treacherous journey from Ivory Coast in Africa to the United States. Then they were bused to Washington, D.C. I'll let Avery take it from here. This is Salimata. My name is Salimata Bakayuku, and I am 22 years old. Salimata spoke to us in French, so you're hearing the voice of Denise Bonilla Shawi, who interpreted her words for us. The reason we left our country was because of violence. People wanted to kill us. Salimata and her family, her husband Musa and her baby son Ibrahim, left Ivory Coast and arrived in Brazil in May 2021. The baby was only a month and a half year old. Earlier this year, they made the months-long journey to the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, it was not easy. The most treacherous part was through the Darien Gap, a roadless, dangerous stretch of jungle between Colombia and Panama. We spent seven days. There was rain. We didn't have anything to eat. There was so much rain and so much mud that we couldn't walk. It was very difficult to walk. We lost a lot of our luggage or a lot of our our things. We left our country with a lot of things and we lost them during this time in the forest. It was so difficult. When I when I think about that time, I, I can't sleep. I, I thought that I was going to die. I, I wanted to die. I thought that I was going to... Um, go crazy in the forest. When Salimata and her family finally made it to the United States, they entered Texas legally as asylum seekers. We spent one night in a shelter, and the next day we were put on the bus. That's where Salimata and her family met Sue. My name is Sue Kenny Falzer, and I'm 51 years old. I was volunteering with the Migrant Solidarity Mutual Aid Network in Washington, D.C. on a day in late May, welcoming the, the buses that were arriving. And I saw Salimata, Musa, and Ibrahim when they got off the bus. I noticed them right away because Ibrahim was, was an adorable little baby, and I love babies. <laughs> and later that day, I got a text from someone else in the, in the volunteer group asking if I still had a spare room and how many people I could take. And so Salimata and Musa came that night. In the beginning when I arrived, because of everything that we had experienced, I felt bizarre. But after arriving at Sue's and and everything she has done for us, she treated us like her own children, I felt better. They ended up staying with me and my husband for 11 weeks, um, basically the whole summer. Uh, I, I had a friend who spoke French that would, meet with us and come over and help when we needed to have long conversations because my husband and I don't speak French. When we were with Sue, she treated us like her children. The baby had nothing and she got him clothes as well. Sue to us was love and happiness. I loved having them there and and I loved being a, a sort of adoptive grandmother to the baby. She gave us clothing, food. She even washed the baby because he was really small, and she even put um, pomade on him. I wanted to give them some some experiences that they've never had before, and so I thought about taking them to see a movie. Even though they don't speak English, although Musa speaks some a little bit of English, but um, I had the idea of taking them to a movie, and at first they were like, no, no, you know, they had never been, and they're like, no, it's okay. Then I, I convinced them to, to go. And my husband stayed home and, and watched the baby. 
and they loved the movie. Nope, the Jordan Jordan Peele. It's a very because it's a very visual movie. I think you know uh, there, there's not it's not very dialogue heavy, so that helped. Afterwards, they were just like all smiles, and Musa with his little bit of English said, "Let's go to the cinema every day." <laughs> He was, he just loved it so much. He said, every day we go. I remember going to the movies with Sushi, really treated us like we were her children. Now that I'm in New York, when I, when I have something difficult to do or that's very difficult, sometimes I cry because I don't have her next to me um, to help me. Sue had long held plans to move to San Diego at the end of the summer for work. So after 11 weeks living at Sue's place, Salimata and her family moved to New York City. I get emotional. We did go grow very, very close, and I wish we could have stayed together, but them coming with us to San Diego just wasn't really an option. I feel bad every day that they're struggling in New York, and I wish I could help them more. Sue started a GoFundMe for Salimata and her family and raised $3,400 for them to use on rent. She found a place for them in the Bronx and helped them move in. But after paying the landlord, things went south. He's not a a nice man, and he started being belligerent from the beginning. Um, I paid him a security deposit plus two months rent in advance, $3,600, and he ended up kicking them out the very next day. Luckily, I was still with them, but there were lots of incidents where he kept yelling at us, and then he came home one day and just started screaming, get the F out of my apartment, to to us as well as the other renter um, that was staying with him. So we packed up and left, and he's refused to give us the money back. So, you know, it's $3,600 they could be using right now to live with. Instead, they're in a homeless shelter. And so I feel really bad that all of that happened. You know, I tried I tried my best to to help them, and this, this guy just took advantage of them. It's very tiring because I can't prepare meals at the shelter, and the shelter food I'm unable to eat. So it's, it's it's very frustrating that, you know, they, they have to be in a homeless shelter. And Salimata texts me all the time that, you know, that she's struggling and that they can't, she can't cook. And so, and, and it's so very expensive for them to have to go out and buy all their food. And when the, the baby was sick and asking me what to do, and I do my best to help them from here, but it's very hard to try to figure out what resources are available to them. Sue is also working pro bono as the family's immigration attorney, helping them with their asylum case. They're legally allowed to work six months after filing their applications, but because of backlogs and delays, she hasn't heard anything from the government about the family's case. Asylum seekers coming from the border are human beings that just need help. And I'm happy I was able to be that for Salimatan Musa and Ibrahim. And I'm going to remain in their lives. My husband and I, um, we're always going to be family. And I encourage more people to <clears throat> see how they can help. Salimata's husband, Musa, weighed in at the end of the conversation. We would feel such joy if we were able to work. A man should work. And we need the papers to be able to work. I don't think the immigration process is bad. It doesn't bother me. It's just that I need to work for my family. I need to work. The U.S. government still doesn't have records of the family's application online, even though they filed for asylum months ago. So they continue to wait. That was 1A producer Avery J.C. Kleinman. She spoke to a family from Ivory Coast in Africa and to Sue Kenny Falzer, who hosted the family when they arrived in Washington, D.C. in May.
Our guest panel joins us after the break to help make sense of the story and the process of seeking asylum in the U.S. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us is Tatiana Laborde. She's the managing director at SAMU First Response. That's an international humanitarian nonprofit that's been greeting migrants who arrive in northern cities. Tatiana, welcome. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Priscilla Alvarez, an immigration reporter with CNN. Priscilla, welcome. Thanks for having me. And Aaron Reichlin Melnick. He's policy director at the American Immigration Council. Welcome back, Aaron. Thank you for having me. So all three of you have been working with and talking to migrants like Salimata and, and her family. And I'm curious, what, if anything, stands out to you about their story? Aaron? I think what we see with their story is the difficulty that people have of navigating the complex immigration court process. Um, especially when uh, the mention that Musa had at the end about needing to work. Um, under U.S. law, asylum seekers cannot apply for a work permit until six months after they file their asylum application, which takes many people months after they arrive at the border to do. That means that people who want to get on their own feet and support themselves are often legally barred from doing so, which forces people to rely on the kindness of strangers and friends or to work under the table because they might not have any other option if they want to feed their family. And working under the table then leaves them open to exploitation. Quite often. And we see that's the horrible situation with the landlord there. For many new arrivals, this is a constant difficulty and something that we see a lot of people struggle with. In August, Customs and Border Patrol reported more than 200,000 encounters with individuals crossing the border. So far this year, there have been more than 2 million such encounters. Governors from southern border states are sending the migrants, most of them asylum seekers, up north. They say it's to relieve the burden at home, but also to demonstrate what they say is the failure of the Biden administration's immigration policies. We invited the governors of Texas, Arizona, and Florida to join the program, but did not hear back from them. Tatiana, as we said, your organization is helping greet migrants like Salimata's family. What do they find when they arrive in Washington, D.C.? Um, that is correct. So uh, usually when they get off the buses, they're a little confused. But first of all, they don't understand the politics that's around them moving up here. It's just a way to get closer to their final destination. Um, a lot of the men uh, usually tell us, I just need a job. I'm ready to work. And then the, the families with the small children are um, in this kind of limbo as of what's next for me. They've been on the road, especially the ones that come from Venezuela with children. They've been on the road for maybe two months to make the journey. And um, thankfully, we're able to offer them a safe space for them to recollect themselves and, and, you know, uh, rest after this really hard journey. And um, they're, they're just, they're a little lost coming to a country where they don't speak the language. Um, that's the first shock. So understanding uh, what their next steps uh, takes a little bit of time, and that's what we're working on. What resources beyond work and, and rest, what resources do these people need when they get here? They need uh, medical support. We have a lot of medical referrals. Actually, over the weekend, we had um, a couple of trips to the ER with our guest. We have an increasing number of pregnant uh, women. We have had two new, three newborns come on the buses. So medical is, is one. 
the socio-emotional uh, needs are extremely high to a lot of uh, mental health issues. They don't understand the trauma that they're in, but as, as days or hours go by, uh, then they start processing their journey and what ha they've lost along the way. So uh, resources for that and all the other social um, services that, that and a regular person in a crisis mode needs. Um, we're working to see how we can get the kids to school, how we can get them into temp uh, permanent housing and, and get the process started. Priscilla, how prepared are northern cities like D.C. and Chicago where the migrants are being sent? Well, mayors have said they're not prepared. And one of the reasons for that, or one of the key reasons for that, is because of the lack of coordination. That's really been the through line with D.C., with New York City and Chicago, where Texas has been sending buses carrying migrants. And what we later saw in Martha's Vineyard after the two charter flights arrived there. Um, and they, the states are not coordinating with these cities to say X number of migrants are coming your way, um, these are their needs, etc. And so when they arrive, to Tatiana's point, they are confused and a bit lost and in need of basic items and, and help. Um, and so these cities have had to mobilize to try to meet the needs of these vulnerable migrants. And we've seen that in New York City uh, with their shelter capacity in Chicago and um, as well as in D.C. So ultimately, what you first hear from mayors is that there is no coordination. They, and, you know, they need federal resources and they receive that to a degree with FEMA funds. But ultimately, they've had to mobilize and bolster up their resources to try to meet uh, the needs of the migrants who are arriving. Well, that takes us to this tweet we got from one of you who asks, aren't the immigrant and asylum services in border towns funded by the federal government? So why DeSantis's anger? Priscilla, can you give us some clarification on that? FEMA provides uh, money to the shelters, to the state to assist migrants. So there is a level of federal help. And what you'll also hear in border towns is the coordination among federal authorities and the shelter networks as uh, migrants are released from custody again so that they can go through their immigration proceedings. So there is a level of coordination and understanding of what it is that these migrants need and there is federal help to achieve those means. So to that tweet, yes, there is help on that level. Of course, the other part of this is the politics of it all and sending amid this influx migrants to these northern cities to make a point. Aaron, jump in here. Yeah, I think it's also worth noting that a lot of that federal funding only goes to nonprofit organizations to provide emergency relief right after people get here in the first week or two. There is no ongoing federal support for migrants after they've got here. You know, there's nothing new about communities around the country stepping up to welcome asylum seekers. But what we're seeing today is the need to create an ongoing federal response to support these level, uh, efforts um, in a more systematic way. Because right now, that funding is really only for those first few days of emergency when a people get, person gets here and needs food, shelter, and a bed to sleep in. What they don't have is ongoing support to help these people navigate the asylum process. That's left up to people on their own to navigate in a strange country where they may not even know the language. Well, Tatiana, just explain a little bit more about what typically happens when a migrant arrives at a U.S. border city, say in Texas or Arizona. So they stay, um, they cross the border, they cross the river, and then they surrender themselves to, to the border patrol. Then they go into... Um, 
the detention centers. And one thing to keep in mind, and it's it's a it's a heartbreaking story, especially for those that have come, have been able to fly to Mexico that might have more belongings. They lose everything they have. All their belongings go into into the trash because nothing. They think they're only allowed one personal item at the detention center, so they're there for a couple of days. Uh, some of them get deported. If it's a family group, they're allowed to come in, and if it's people from Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, and some other countries, they're allowed to come in um, and wait for their hearings. Once they um, once they're released. They'll search for those nonprofits on the border to get some respite care. But in the border, it looks more like in a lot of towns, it's just a couple of hours. You know, I'll give you a sandwich and here's some information. This is a U.S. map where you're going to go figure out your plan and off you go. And then uh, we're seeing more people making it up to San Antonio and then up to the northern cities because their ideal destination is usually New York City just because it's what they know. It's what's popular. Mm. Uh, let's go to this voicemail we got from Kelly in Lynchburg, Virginia. You need to do a show about how the border towns in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and California, how are they tolerating this? How are they economically tolerating it? Priscilla, you've spent a lot of time at the southern border. Give us some more context about what kind of pressure those southern border states are under. Well, remember, too, that migrants don't typically stay along the border. They do move to other states where, again, they're going to go through their immigration court proceedings, which is, in some respects, some of the irony which with what's happening now, because migrants do typically leave the state. And in some cases, these buses may benefit that movement uh, as they make their way to New York City, to D.C., or use those cities to get to some to Miami, Florida, for example. Um, so, yes, of course, there's going to be uh, some pressure for border states who see this influx day in and day out, and especially for those border communities who are trying to respond to it as it is happening. But we have to remember that oftentimes those migrants are not going to stay there or stay in that state. They're going to move about to other parts of the country where they may have family or they may have friends uh, or they have a job opportunity that they're, they have sites on. I've sort of seen that in talking to some migrants who may think that they have a job waiting somewhere um, once they're legally able to work and then move about to other parts of the country. So it's not that they're all or would have all stayed in Texas or Arizona uh, had they uh, not been bused. Now, Aaron, many of the tens of thousands of migrants who ended up on buses and planes to northern cities are asylum seekers. What rights do they have upon entering the U.S.? Yeah, the number one thing people should know is that seeking asylum is legal no matter how you enter the United States. Migrants released at the border to go through the asylum process are legally present in the United States. They are not illegal immigrants. And crucially, asylum is a protection that is only available to people who are present, physically present in the United States or arriving at a port of entry. That's unlike refugee status where you apply abroad and when you enter the United States, you've already won your case. While they go through this process, the entire idea is to determine whether or not they meet the legal definition of a refugee. But until that happens, they are here and they have to go through a process. And that process is backlog. As of today, the average waiting time between a person being first placed in immigration court and getting a final decision on their case is nearly five years. And they have to support themselves in a foreign country that entire time. And Aaron, to be clear, the, the law you're uh, referring to around asylum seeking, 
Who established that? When was it established? Give us some context. Yeah, since 1980, the United States has enshrined the right to seek asylum in law. The current law dates from 1996, but it is about the same on this basic principle. Once you are physically present on U.S. soil, you can apply for asylum, and the government cannot deport you until it makes a decision on that application. And this is a core protection to make sure that people fleeing persecution from countries like Cuba or Nicaragua or Venezuela are not turned away and sent back to their persecutors where they might die. All of this came out of the Holocaust and World War II and the tragedies and genocides of the 20th century. But our asylum protection system is a 20th century system. The last time we updated this law was 1996, over 25 years ago. And today we are dealing with a 21st century migration crisis. We need to update our laws to deal with this. Laws and systems which have long been systematically underfunded and uh, undermined, especially by the Trump administration. So when President Biden took office, those systems were lacking. They didn't have enough people and officers to hear these cases. There's not enough judges. And in fact, we've seen billions of dollars more spent on border wall, which does nothing to deter asylum seekers, than on the asylum system. And it's no wonder that these delays are so long. Well, as you've all mentioned, President Joe Biden has also said he's keeping an eye on asylum seekers from certain countries. What's on my watch now is Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. And the ability to send them back to those states is not rational. You could send them back and have them wait. We're working with Mexico and other countries to see if we can stop the flow. But that's the difference. Thank you. Priscilla, according to federal government statistics, immigration agents encountered almost 150,000 Venezuelans along the U.S.-Mexico border between October last year and August. And that's a threefold increase from last year. Why has there been such a massive jump in these numbers? Well, the situation in Venezuela has been deteriorating for a long time now, and many Venezuelans had fled the country to other parts of South America, and uh, the coronavirus pandemic exacerbated conditions in some of those other countries. And so they've continued to move about. It's what the administration will call secondary movement. And just to really put a fine point on this, there's more than 6 million Venezuelans who have fled their country amid those conditions. That matches Ukraine in the number of displaced people, and it surpasses Syria. So it, it's a massive refugee crisis happening in the Western Hemisphere. And what we're seeing is those movements of people not may, may have moved to another country, may have fled to another country, and now moving again. And some of those are coming to the U.S.-Mexico border. And as you heard there from Biden, this does pose a challenge because we have, because of the frosty relations between the U.S. and Venezuela, we, uh, it really keeps the U.S. from, from uh, removing Venezuelans. And so it adds a, complicated, a complication to the processing of Venezuelans who are also often seeking asylum, uh, political asylum as one. And so we, they are released into the country again as they go through proceedings uh, and go through the asylum process. But it has added a big challenge for this administration to deal with just the shifting demographics at the U.S.-Mexico border, which now includes a jump in Venezuelans. And it's not just that population. It is also Cubans and Nicaraguans. We learned in the numbers last month that there has been more than a 175% increase from last August in those populations. So Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. We're discussing migrant busing out of U.S. border states, and we'll be back with more of this conversation in a moment. Remember to send us your questions and thoughts, download the 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a message.
Let's get back to our discussion on migrant busing. Well, last week, a class action lawsuit was filed against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis by 48 migrants flown to Martha's Vineyard. Here's Oren Selstrom from Lawyers for Civil Rights, the group representing the migrants. It all boils down to this idea that there was fraud and deceit, that our clients were promised jobs, they were promised educational opportunities for their children, would be waiting for them at their destination. And it was all deceit and trickery. Priscilla, what more can you tell us about the lawsuit? Well, the lawsuit lays out allegations of what these migrants were promised before they went on these flights to Martha's Vineyard. And also, they describe a woman, for example, named Perla, and she they say in the lawsuit, had coerced and misled these migrants into taking these flights north under false pretenses. She also, according to the lawsuit, or that, or the lawsuit at least notes, that migrants in some cases were given McDonald's gift certificates to sort of earn their trust to go on these flights. And so in these allegations, what it really boils down to is what the lawsuit and what the lawyers have called a scheme. Um, and misleading migrants into taking these chartered flights to Martha's Vineyard and doing so, again, under false pretenses. For example, they note the benefits. Um, you know, there is allegations here of brochures that were provided to migrants that laid out benefits like housing and medical support, etc., But those benefits are for refugees. Refugees apply for protection abroad, and they come in through the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, and they have uh, benefits that are provided to them by the federal government that asylum seekers do not have until they are granted asylum. And so all of this really led to migrants being very confused when they arrived to Martha's Vineyard, not knowing where they were, number one, believing they were going to other cities, and then also believing that they were going to have jobs and support, when in reality, the people on the ground had no idea that they were coming. And so this lawsuit lays out step by step what it is that they found or heard from migrants in terms of before jumping on those flights and what happened thereafter. Daddy Santis's office responded to the lawsuit by providing Fox News with a copy of a consent form that they said was given to migrants before they boarded. Tatiana, have you had a chance to see this consent form? I have, and I have um, a lot of questions on whether or not they understood what they were signing. Um, because I, 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 I am not... I wouldn't be surprised, you know, you put a paper in front of a, a migrant offering any kind of help and they're going to, no questions, sign it. So how did they get that? Um, again, it's, it's very easy and the, the evidence is there. And I think one, one of the other things to, to bring into consideration is how states are doing things differently, right? We know the migrants are not going to stay at the border towns. How they're moved, it creates a really big difference and we're seeing... Uh, that between the way that Arizona is doing it, Texas, even within Texas, Laredo and the other areas, and then Florida is just mm-hmm. another. Well, we got this tweet from someone who said, El Paso, Texas born, South Florida raised, Mexican, Puerto Rican here. Texas as a state may seem unfriendly to immigrants, but border towns are not. Governor Abbott doesn't speak for all of Texas. Priscilla, as someone who's been visiting border towns and you're reporting, does is that an accurate reflection? 
It is. I have been spending the last several months bouncing around to different border towns, be it in California and Arizona, Texas. And the border communities are unique. There is immigration is part of the fabric of those communities. And so there's often an outpouring of support for those who are crossing and going into these usually pretty, depending on where you are on the border, pretty robust shelter networks, but it is part of the community. And so it is, and it's not only that, by the way, we were talking about migrants who are crossing and seeking asylum in the U.S., but remember, there is cross-border traffic along border towns. There are people, you know, there are people from Mexico who go to school in the United States and they cross the ports of entry and then they cross back. There's shopping that happens. Um, so the idea of crossing back and forth through the ports of entry or having migrants who are crossing and seeking asylum in the U.S. is just part of the day-to-day in these border communities. I just briefly want to mention that in addition to that civil case, there's a criminal investigation underway in Bear County. Priscilla, what effect are these investigations or lawsuits having on Governors Abbott and DeSantis sending migrants out of Texas and Florida? Well, they have not shown any indication of stopping the busing. Um, Abbott has continued to do so, as has Ducey. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has teased that there may be more flights, but we have not seen that as of yet. But despite these lawsuits, despite the criticism and the pushback, these governors have not shown any indication that they plan to stop. We got this tweet from DeCorbin, who says, I agree that our immigration system needs to be reformed. There needs to be a coordinated effort across the country to help migrants. Rather than blame the president, Congress needs to step up and reform the system with compassion and understanding of why people leave home. Tatiana and Aaron, I want to hear from each of you how you'd like to see immigration policies change. Aaron, you mentioned a more robust comprehensive support system for migrants coming into the country. But from a policy perspective, what would you like to see? Well, as I mentioned before, what we need to do is have the federal government step in here. Because for years, the federal government's response has been, once a migrant is out of our custody at the Border Patrol, it's really what happens next is not our concern. We'll maybe coordinate with border shelters to make sure that they are not dropped off in front of a gas station. But at that point, the federal government essentially lifts its hands and says, all we care about is whether they eventually check in with court. So we really need the federal government to step up and play a leadership role here. But there's also a question of sort of how we respond as a nation. And I think the question that's really facing us right now is do we respond, you know, are we a a nation of communities like Governor DeSantis who are treating migrants like toxic waste to be dumped on other as other people's problems? Or are we a community like Martha's Vineyard or El Paso, which has been stepping up to respond to migrants? You know, even in Martha's Vineyard, when 50 people arrived, within 24 hours, they had food, bed, and shelter for them. Within 48 hours, the state of Massachusetts stepped up and said, we're going to do more. And I think really that is the question we have to answer right now as a national response. What kind of country are we? From a policy perspective, how much can President Biden do on his own and how much requires congressional action? Yeah, the, President Biden actually is, is fairly limited in what he can do on this point. And I think what we've seen, as Priscilla mentioned before, with the Venezuelans, Cubans, and Nicaraguans on there, the Biden administration would love nothing more than to simply expel all of them back to Mexico and not have to deal with it. But because we have no diplomatic relations with those countries, we literally cannot. You know, if a country refuses deportations, you can't deport someone there. This has been the case with Cuba for decades. Part of the reason why we had wet foot, dry foot in the 90s, it was a recognition that there are some things that are out of our control and it's better to find a way to formalize it and create a legal process than it is to simply keep complaining about it. 
And so really, this is where Congress needs to step up. We need to rethink what an asylum system looks like in the 21st century. But Biden has limited things he can do. Tatiana, I'll give you the last word here. What would you like to see change? So I would like a, a speedier process into getting those work permits. I think that's critical to whether or not they're successful. And have a net, have communities throughout the country really set up that uh, newcomers program so that they can come into their societies, really take the burden off the border towns and learn from maybe uh, efforts like Arizona that has a coordinated effort with NGOs receiving them and take the migrants in an organized, humane way to other places that need a workforce, that need uh, to grow their populations. That's Tatiana Laborde. She's managing director at SAMU First Response. That's an international humanitarian nonprofit. Also with us today, Aaron Reichlin Melnick, policy director at the American Immigration Council, and Priscilla Alvarez, an immigration reporter with CNN. Tatiana, Aaron, Priscilla, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producers were Avery J.C. Kleinman and Maya Garg. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.